Well, last week, I concluded our expositional series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this week, I'm starting the other part of, in many ways, what is a very connected letter, going over a lot of the same themes and touching upon that were done in Paul's first letter. This week, I'm starting an expositional series in the second letter or epistle to the Thessalonians. Matter of fact, it's so similar. The subtitle, Living Today in Light of Tomorrow, remains the same, even though it's, so to speak, a new series. But of course, as I said, it's very connected. Now, think back. Not long after Paul closed the writing of his first letter, It wasn't very long, maybe a matter of weeks or certainly only a few months, most likely. Paul started getting some feedback from the church in Thessalonia. He had written them that first letter to encourage them and to clarify some things and help their understanding and help them grow in their faith. And he was excited about some of the things he was hearing, but he also realized there was still some confusion on some matters that he had already raised in the first book. Persecution, the second coming, and idol dropouts. People that were so excited about the possibility of Jesus coming back, they quit their work and quit their jobs, and they were being busybodies. Paul knew that he had unfinished business, so he writes them this second letter. Our scripture reading begins in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, today verses 1 through 5. Hear with attention and appreciation the word of the Lord. Paul, Selvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. May God add the blessing to the reading and the hearing of this is holy word. Will you pray with me? Father, once again, we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do something that is not capable to be done by human beings, that you would come and bless your word in our hearing and this proclamation of its content, that you would keep, Lord, me from 
spoiling or tainting your truth, that you would, Lord, cause it to yield its peaceable fruit of righteousness in us as we receive it in faith and humility. Teach us, Father. Give us, Lord, the, let us hear the soft sound of sandal feet of your Son, our Lord Jesus, our true rabbi and our great high priest. In his name we pray. Amen. It goes without saying, there is a lot of pain and suffering in today's world. A lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties, a lot of trials. Let me just mention three words to give you a reminder as if you needed it. North Korea, standoff, Charlottesville. Barcelona, and we could just go on and on. We live in a troubled time, in a troubled and broken world still. But I want to ask you a question. In the midst of all of the suffering and the injustice and the wrongs that are still being done and the misunderstanding in a world that is far from what it was supposed to be. What would you say is your own personal greatest hope in your life right now? Whatever's going on, whatever will be going on, what is it that you hope in most to get you through? Is it if your 401k gets flush enough? Is it if you keep Able to be a part of the right group? Is it if you find the right one to marry? Or if your kids will at last finally turn out okay? What is your final hope? What is it that you most are counting on to anchor you and fortify you in a troubling world? Well, as I've said before in the last series, the world of the Thessalonians is a lot like ours. And yet the Apostle Paul proclaimed a gospel that contains a hope that transcends the circumstances of their world and of ours, no matter how dire they become. And furthermore, He believed this. He believed if rightly understood this hope that he's talking about in this book and in the last book, this hope can have a transforming impact upon us in the here and now regardless of what happens in the present or has happened in the past or will happen in the future. Paul believed that. It's called the blessed hope. And it surfaces again in this passage this morning. Today, I wanted to look at three things with you in this passage from chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I want to look at Paul's greeting and then a peek at Paul's gratefulness and then surprisingly at Paul's gloating. You know what gloating is, don't you? Boasting. So Paul's Greeting, his gratefulness, and his gloating. Now, 
Let's look at that first point, Paul's greeting here. Paul begins with a very similar greeting to the one he used again and again in all of his letters. This one has a lot of the same substance. Matter of fact, this one is very similar to the greeting, almost identical, that he made in the first letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, that would be Barnabas, would be his other name, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's more here than meets the eye. Let me just give you a a few flashpoints. First, imagine you are this struggling church that is being persecuted and being pummeled by the unbelieving forces of that time. And you are getting, and this letter finally has come from Paul, and this letter has encouraged you. And you are so excited to see what he calls you right up front. He says, you guys are the church of the Thessalonians. Now, what's the significance of that? Though they are just hanging on by the skin of their teeth, but yet they are being called as the, are are being recognized by the Apostle Paul as the called out ones, the special ones as God's outpost of heaven in the world today. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a little piece of the world to come deposited in time. And that's what they're called. That would have been encouraging to them. Second, the pagans of the day did not speak of being in their God. That was, that was a totally foreign concept. There was the gods and there was them, and they had nothing really to do with one another except stay out of the way of the gods if they could. But here, Paul says the Thessalonians are in God. An incredible statement that he makes over and over again, this idea of union with God or union with Christ that is so key in the Scriptures and to our salvation. Paul does so here and he does so elsewhere. He says in Colossians 3, 3, that familiar passage when he says that for we have died and your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. That's an amazing thing. He says you have a relational union with the creator of the universe and your own personal savior and nothing can change that. What an encouragement they would find in that, knowing that they draw their life from God the Father and His Son. Do you realize that's where you draw your life? If you're really a believer today, if you think it's about just keeping the the rules and following the motions and, and doing the right stuff, you don't understand what the gospel is. You don't understand true Christianity. It's not a life that's hard. The Christian life is a life that's impossible. That's why you have to have Jesus inside. Not intel, but Jesus. He's the only one that can empower you to live the life you're called to. Third, in his previous letter, Paul spoke about God the Father, but now did you see how he referred to him? He called him God our Father. You know what he's doing there? He's drilling down not only that he is God, the father of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. He's not only what the creed testifies to, he is our father. This stresses our adoption. 
This trust is that personal relationship that he has with us as our Abba Father. And then, fourthly, that relational union that we've been talking about, of being in him, that relational union we have with God and Jesus comes and comprises a comprehensive experience of grace and peace. Because we have that relationship, it results in the experience of grace and peace. The, the being overwhelmed by God's undeserved, unmerited favor. We deserve condemnation, and yet we have received grace upon grace. And that results in a peace that passes all understanding, even if everything else in our world begins to come unglued. That's where Paul is going because he knows they're persecuted. We're going to see that in just a few moments. But here, notice this very carefully. There can be, there can be no peace unless grace precedes it. You can't find peace truly in this world because of its fallenness. And because our sin has broken the relationship with God, we cannot find peace unless we have experienced his grace first. And that leads us to then knowing the shalom, the well-being, the peace, the wholeness of God when we have become his children through what Jesus Christ, his son, has done for us through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's gratefulness we see basically in verse 3 and in verse 4b. Paul is so excited about the progress of this new little church, he explodes with thanksgiving. He just goes off uh, with what he sees and hears about this happening in their lives. Look again at verses 4, excuse me, verse 3, and then verse the second part of verse 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And then Paul says, in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, what is going on here? Paul is basically telling us something he has told us about a number of times already in this, past, in this uh, series, in the first book. Paul, throughout a lot of his epistles, keeps bringing three things together. Three important things about the Christian life that's supposed to characterize it. That's supposed to mark it. Virtues that are supposed to be a part of the Christian's life and walk. And what are they? There's that Pauline triad again. Those three things that Paul loves to talk about. Faith, hope, and love. And I believe they're right here in this text that we see it. Two of them are very obvious. One is somewhat tucked away and a little bit less conspicuous. But I believe it's there and I'll try to show you why. First of all, what... What is this that he's talking about? Three areas of the lives in which these Thessalonian Christians are growing in faith, 
They're increasing in love and they're steadfast, hanging on, enduring in hope. That's the three things that Paul is recognizing that's got him so excited and for which he's expressing gratitude and gratefulness to God. First, he says they're growing in their faith. The faith is not just there. It's a faith that's maturing and growing in understanding and knowledge. The word Paul uses here to describe it is that faith that is flourishing or superabounding. That's the word he uses when he describes their faith. He said, it's a rich faith. This is something like describing a healthy organic plant that's growing. If a tree is really healthy and growing, it is going to be producing fruit. That's the imagery that Paul is talking about. Natural growth is what you would expect from a healthy plant or tree. And Paul says, man, I'm hearing about it and everything that's coming my way, how your faith is growing. And that excited him, and he gave thanks for that. Second, he says, your love is increasing. I hear about your love increasing. Their faith in God was evidenced by their love for the church and for one another and for others. He said, there's a, there's a proof that your faith is real because it's showing up in love. You know how Paul often, so often commingled those two throughout all his writings? Have you noticed that? When he talks about faith, love is usually not far behind. If you got faith, demonstrate it with the way you love. Same point James was making. You see, faith and love are commingled so that we can hardly have one without the other. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, in the first chapter, Paul said this, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love. You see, there's the two together. And then also in Galatians 5, 6, Paul said, For in Christ Jesus, neither is there circumcision nor uncircumcision that counts for anything. And here's what he says, the only thing that counts. But faith working through love. Faith, the only thing that counts, Paul is saying. The only thing is faith that is working through or expressing itself, manifesting itself, showing up in real, tangible love for one another and for others. That's the mark. Jesus said it would be the mark of how we would know his community. You know the difference between a club and a community, don't you? A club is usually where you, what you get involved with when you get to choose who the people are going to be like and what they're going to be like in a club. They have a certain thing, and you get to choose that. And because it's what you like and what you want, you tend to be able to get along pretty well and feel pretty cohesive in that. Is that what a community is? No. A community is a place that's much more diverse, much more mixed, much more varied and they're going to probably be in any community that you live in or any community that you're a part of. There's probably going to some people, be some people that you don't quite understand. They, they have different perspective than you do. They may look different than you do, whatever. But you see what Paul is saying and what God is calling his people to be a part of. And not a club, but a community where you love those that are not easy to love. Where you stretch and reach out to those that are not altogether like you. 
but you extend the love of God. That's why in our vision statement, we call our, we say we want to be, we pray that God will help us become what? A community of faith, hope, and love committed to knowing Christ and making him known. We're deadly serious about that. That's what we want to be. Are we there in every way? No, we got a long way to go. We still fail in our love for one another and for others. But that's what Jesus is calling us to be. There's a big difference between that and a club. Too many churches are like clubs. We need to be more like a community where you reach to not only the one and involve yourself with the ones that are the most influential, but to the least. Jesus said we need to be reaching to them as well. Third, there is hope that is steadfast. Now you say, wait a minute, Joe, I didn't read the word hope in that passage. You're right. The word steadfast, though, that Paul uses is the word that implies endurance or perseverance. Endurance or perseverance. It was used by Paul in the first letter to the, to the Thessalonians, verse 3. Listen again. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and, here it comes, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul just didn't include the word, but he describes the reality. It's here. And why do we know it's here? Because hope is what you need when things are going so hard. And this church was being persecuted. They needed to be able to endure. Although the word hope is not used in verse 4, it is implied. Endurance inspired by hope is what Paul is talking about here. So he says, you need faith, hope, and love. And I see maturity and growth increase in those things. And I see you enduring. And man, I am so excited. I'm praising God for that. I am so grateful to the Father for what he's doing. My friends, back to the point where I started this morning. Remember when I asked you, what is your hope? This hope, the hope that God has the future and that he's coming back again. Paul's already talked about it. He's going to talk about it more in this letter. The second coming of Christ, that's what we call the blessed hope. This is the only hope brilliant enough, powerful enough, and sure enough to overcome the heartache and pain and misery of this broken world. If you are hoping in anything else, I don't know how you and I will manage except just get by, medicate, or whatever else. But we're not going to soar. We're not going to thrive. We're not going to grow. We're not going to superabound. Unless we have that hope that makes us want to purify ourselves, even as he is pure. As we think about what, the way the world is going to end when Jesus returns, that ought to stimulate us, encourage us, help us endure now. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. 
If you know that is going to be the final outcome, if you know there's a new heavens and a new earth that's coming, if you know that our bodies will not be left, but one day we will body and soul be with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth in which there is no more crying and pain and in which nothing is lost, if you know that is coming, you can hold on. How bad, however bad it may become. Do you understand that? That's what Paul is talking about. That's why he's so excited. He sees them doing that. He sees it coming out of the future into their present. He sees them living in light of tomorrow that Jesus will bring. And it really, really fires him up. Now, what about Paul's gloating? What in the world am I talking about here? Paul is famous for giving us a number of theologies, a theology of, uh, about a lot of things, you know, our, our understanding of, of uh, creation, understanding of God, understanding union with Christ, a lot of theology. But, you know, a theology of gloating, <laughs> that's, uh, that's as, as, as the Geico commercial says, that's surprising. A theology of gloating, that's surprising. But look at verse 4a. Look. Verse 4a, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. We boast about you in the churches of God. You see, of course we know we're supposed to what? Boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We know we're supposed to boast in the Lord and in the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, we know that and that's true. But Paul expands the boasting to include the ways the Thessalonian believers endured persecution. He says, when I look at the way you guys are hanging on and holding up and staying steadfast, despite what's been thrown at you, the kitchen sink, and you guys, and he says, man, that's impressive. I've got to tell others about that. I've got to let some folks know about that. That's the work of God in your life, and it's so obvious. Paul's ecstatic that they're beginning to understand what living in light of the blessed hope implies, like I was talking about a few moments ago. They're beginning to get it. They realize, as Luther said, the body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever, and I'm going to be a part of it, and there's nothing between here and hell and back that can do a thing about it. They got it. And if you and I really get that, and you know what? We probably won't get that unless we're in the kind of persecution and suffering. That's only when you find out what you really, really cling to with clarity. I'm not wishing that upon us. I'm just saying I don't know that we'll grasp it because we're so, so inebriated with all the things around us and the blessings that we have. You see, but these folks got it. Now, last thing I want to look at, very important. Verse 5. You, you look at your, if you look at your bulletin, it says I'm going through 1 through 4. To be honest, I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth in my studies on this. But I think that this verse here, verse 5, let me read it. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you were also suffering. Let me cut to the chase. There are a lot of people that think this verse belongs to the next section, 6 through 12, which is about the judgment of God upon unbelievers. But I don't believe it belongs there. I believe it belongs here in this section. I believe it is connected to in a number of ways. This section, I believe, is based on linkage and on context and on other verses. It belongs here. The this, the word this, refers to the present suffering, not a final judgment. It's talking about something that's being revealed and spotlighted and showing up as evidence in the present. Paul talks the same way in Philippians 1.28 and in James 1, 2 through 4, James writes. Listen to these verses. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, Paul says in Philippians, but of your salvation and that from God. He's saying judgment comes in two forms. One form is condemnation and brings wrath. The other is vindication, right determination and vindication and exaltation. Being lifted up, being vindicated. And James, when he talks about here in, in, in one, two, uh, 1, 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, there's the word again, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says, enduring suffering with steadfastness changes you. It's one of God's gracious ways in which he makes you a little bit more and more like Jesus. It makes you more and more resemble the sons and daughters of the kingdom that you indeed already are. But you'll start looking more and more like it. You see, I believe Paul's main point here is this. What's he saying in this passage? What is this bit about the judgment? I think that he is saying perseverance is the evidence that God has already rendered a acquitted, approved verdict in his judgment. And your suffering persecution, the way you're doing so with such faith, hope, and love is evidence that you really have been justified and forgiven by God. In other words, that you really are the genuine article. This is proving He says, when people see you suffering like this, they know God got it right. You understand? That's the essence of what he's saying. There's no question when you see people living like this, under these circumstances, you know that's the real McCoy. You know it's the genuine article. It's not a fake faith. It's not a faith that's going to falter somewhere along the line. It's the real deal. And its author is God from first to last you see it is their faith and endurance in the face of persecution that is the evidence of God's righteous judgment in their favor for them for those believers and for every true believer as I've told you before judgment day has already come and gone but at the
the last judgment day, there's just going to be a lot of verification that those God whom he did save are the genuine article. They're the real deal. And they will have been made more and more like Jesus while they're here. And then that job will be completed before the day of judgment. And they will prove to be what grace has indeed made them. One question arises, and I, and I think this is helpful. There's a, there was a particular, one particular commentator I thought had a, had a nice analogy here, and I'm going to share it with you. But let me pose the question that still comes in our mind when we think about judgment. And again, that's going to be clear next week. But this is a different judgment. This is the judgment of acquittal, of vindication that Paul is talking about. God's going to be shown to be right in what he did. Now, here's the question. Are we counted worthy to enter the kingdom because of faith in Christ or because of our endurance and perseverance in good works? Are we counted, is it one or the other? Is it both? And if so, in what sense? Here's what uh, G.K. Beale says. An analogy might help (laughs) explain. You pay money to obtain entry to a professional football game. In order to enter the stadium, however, you must have a what? A ticket at the gate. Is it the money that provides access to the game or is it the ticket? Both. But are the money and the ticket equal causes that you get in? Answer is no. Ultimately, the money paid is what really gets you in. But you have the ticket as evidence that you really paid the price for the game. Then he says, likewise, true Christians are those on behalf of whom Christ has paid the price of the ticket, the penalty of our sins. But they also must have the badge of good works as the evidence that Christ paid the purchase price in order to be considered worthy of passing the final judgment and becoming part of his kingdom. He's just saying once again, one is the proof of the other. It is what God has done in forgiving and paying the price that produces. It's a cause and effect, but that effect is nonetheless there. And Peter, uh, Paul is saying here, When you look at these folks, it's going to be visible. It's going to be in that day, you will know God got it right. God got it right. They didn't get off the hook or slip around the edge. They, the penalty was paid, the price was paid, and that's why they're there. And yet there will be evidence. Whatever afflictions are going on in your life and mine now or down the road from now, or have gone on in the past. Do you understand that they have nothing to do with God's wrath for you if you're a believer in Christ? Now, if you're not, whole new ballgame. We're going to talk about that next week. But if you are, that judgment day, as I said, is already coming on. That wrath is no longer Paul's. I mean, John said it in chapter 3. The wrath of God no longer is there. 
It's no longer there for the believer in Christ. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those that believe on his name. Amen. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, these are important distinctions. But Lord, let us never be confused about what it is that will help us stand the test of that day. It's what helped the Thessalonians know they were going to stand that. And Paul was able to encourage them and remind them that the way they were living and the way they were hoping and loving, Lord, that was just the way in their faith that just proved what you had already done in their lives. Help what you're doing in our lives to prove, too, that we are yours and your followers and that we've already passed through the judgment and there's no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now, therefore, you said in Romans 7, 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But, Father, for those who are not, Lord, it's a different story. Open eyes and ears and minds, Lord, to understand what needs to be done in their case, the one to whom they must come. And Lord, help that be clear next week, Father, I pray. We ask now again that you would encourage us, keep us hanging on in faithful endurance and living with faith, hope, and love. And we pray that you will continue to make us that community that demonstrates that, reveals that, that highlights that more and more. We pray in Jesus' name.